Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good? Yes. Good to see you. Second service. I hope you are well. My name is Ryan, just like Brian said, and I am the high school director here at the Florence campus. It is a privilege to get to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, For those who don't know me, I've been here uh, at Grace for three years, moved here from Colorado, thought I was escaping weather like this, but alas, no. Um, I've been married to my wife, Emily, for eight years. We've been married eight years. She's an operating room nurse. She's awesome. Um, And we've got a son named Brody who is approaching two years old, and he's just the best. He he has several hobbies, um, including, number one, his number one hobby is buses. And I mean that generally speaking. He's just a fan of buses. If we're driving down the road and he sees a yellow school bus drive by, he just starts shouting, bus, yeah, bus. He's stoked. He, uh, his grandmother got him a little toy bus that he runs around in our house in constantly. His favorite song to sing is the wheels on the bus. They go round and round and they go round and round and they go round and round. <laughs> And they go round and round, constantly in our house. So he's great. He's got other hobbies, including throwing food on the ground. He has uh, uh, become an expert at that, if you will. Um, he loves to tackle me. He's, he's a husky boy, too, so he's got some momentum to him. Uh, but he's great. We love him to death. Um, my wife and I, we've noticed he, <laughs> he spends about 90% of his life just sort of toddling right beside us. Um, which I love. It's great. It can be cumbersome, but it's good. Like he's, he just wants to be always by us, mimicking, mimicking us, doing what we're doing. Um, the other 10% of the time, if he's not right by my side, that's like a warning signal for me. Um, you parents who have many kids, you're like, oh, I know this. I'm learning all this for the first time. Because if he's not right beside me, he's doing something destructive or dangerous. So it's like, oh, he's not by me. He's smashing a plate. Or, oh, he's not by me. He's at the top of a stairwell. That sort of thing. Uh, but he's great. I've, um, I've always observed, and I confess, sometimes I've made fun of um, youth pastor friends I know, or even just pastors I know, that once they become dads, their sermons and their preachings just sort of morphs into, like, yes, talking about the Bible, talking about Jesus, which is good, but also just every illustration is about their kids. I stand before you guilty of that this morning. So, um, But I think there must be a reason for this. Why? Because the reality is, I think, do kids teach us something really beautiful about truths about who God is and who we are, and there must be a reason for this. We have a God that's a father, um, God the Son. We are, if you believe in Jesus, a part of God's family. We've been adopted. Um, and so... I, um, yeah, it's, it's the reason I love talking about my son, uh, but when Brian asked me to preach this morning, uh, it was sort of dealer's choice. It was like, you get to pick whatever you want, and I selected John 21. Um, John 21, the Spirit quickly was like, preach that. John 21, the passage we're about to read, some of the last words Jesus gives Peter in this chapter are simply, follow me follow me. Um, there was a, uh, a practice um, in ancient Near Eastern culture where the disciple, that is the follower, would follow the rabbi, that is the teacher. And uh, there was this idiom that they used to use where the disciple would follow the teacher so closely behind that the disciple would catch the dust of the teacher, that when the teacher walks, like dust lands 
on the follower because they're so closely following behind. My son, I, we, we, since he's by my side 90% of the time, he does this. If I'm eating donuts, he's catching the donut dust and eating it. If, he, if I drop anything, even if it's not edible, he's trying to eat it, right? Follower, to be in the dust. John 21, the chapter we're about to read this morning, is all about what it looks like to follow Jesus. To not just be someone who knows a lot about Jesus, but to walk so closely behind him that we're catching the dust from the rabbi. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 20. Nope. Yeah, John 21. Context before we get there. Um, John 17 is Jesus's high priestly prayer. John 18, Jesus is betrayed and arrested. Peter denies him three times, notably. John 19 is the passion of Christ, the the crucifixion. John 20, we have Jesus, resurrected Jesus, who begins to reveal himself to his followers. And then we get to John 21. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Let's read. Starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They got out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, speaking of himself so humbly, uh, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Point number one for this morning's sermon is simply this. You are always one yes away from following Jesus. You are always one yes away from following Jesus. Peter tells his buddies, I'm going fishing. You might want to highlight, circle, underline that phrase, I am going fishing. This statement has been the source of much debate as to the nature of Peter saying, I'm going fishing. Is this a really, really bad thing that Peter just said in line with apostasy, just abandoning his faith, or is it not a big deal? If you think it's a really bad thing, you would be thinking of and referencing Matthew 4.19. When Peter is, meets Jesus for the first time, and Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Peter, up until that point in his life, is a fisherman by trade. He eats, sleeps, breathes, fishing. Um, I, when I was in college, I loved the Discovery Channel television show, Deadliest Catch. 
Um, if you've never seen it before, it follows a bunch of goofballs who are on boats in the Bering Sea by Alaska catching crabs. And all of these captains have big beards. It kind of looks like they're always sweating. They smoke a pack of cigarettes every 10 minutes. I imagine Peter being the ancient Near Eastern Jewish version of this, right? Just casting out crab pots on the Sea of Galilee. I don't think they have crab in the Sea of Galilee. I don't know. He's a fisherman. It's what he does. He eats, sleeps, breathes fishing. And yet here shows Jesus. And he says, Peter, your way of life, your identity, what you used to do, once you follow me, changes. You no longer fish, you fish for men. Go make disciples. And so for Peter, here, on this side of the crucifixion, on this side of the resurrection, to say, I am going fishing, might be John's way of showing us that Peter has abandoned the call that Jesus gave on his life, that he's returning back to his old ways, back to his old identity. That's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument says, well, this is not a big deal. We're reading too far into this. They've got to eat, right? They're human. What do you expect Jesus to do or Peter to do? Like toss out some corn, start a fr- No, he's a fisherman. Like he fishes. I land where a lot of commentators land is that it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, Don Carson says something like this. He says, Um, It might not be total apostasy, but it does not appear that Jesus and the disciples are on some sort of spirit-empowered mission to find the resurrected Jesus and to tell other people about it. This does not look like the book of Acts. And so they go fishing, and it seems not great. And what we read is that when they go fishing, they catch nothing. They're striking out. And then Jesus is that guy standing out 100 yards from shore. Golfers, you know exactly that yardage. Um, and he, he says, he asks the question that um, every failed fisherman loves to hear. Have you caught anything? <laughs> and they say, no. And he says, toss the net on the right side. And so they toss the net on the right side, and they catch so many fish that they're unable to haul in the fishing net onto the boat. It's a massive quantity of fish. And it is in this moment that the disciple whom Jesus loves, John, it clicks for him. He's the smartest man in the room. He's like, we've experienced this before. (laughs) Says, it is the Lord. And this is why I love Peter. Peter hears John make this realization, and it clicks for him too. Keep in mind the baggage Peter is carrying on that boat. He's a coward. Not three chapters earlier, he has denied Jesus three times. You can imagine the guilt and the shame Peter must have felt on that boat. He'd boasted before others that he'd never abandoned Christ. He said that he loves Jesus more than anyone else, and yet he denies his Savior three times at his greatest moment of need. And yet at the word, John's words, it is the Lord, Peter's instinct is not to hide. It's not to pull a Jonah, turn the boat around, and head in the opposite direction of God. It is to throw himself off the boat and towards his Savior. There's a funny detail in this passage that I love. John says that before he throws himself in the water, 
um, that Peter was stripped for work, which means he was in his speedo, um, ready to swim. And yet he grabs his tunic. Your tunic is sort of your outer coat. It's what you'd wear outside if the weather was like it is today. Peter's ready to swim, but he grabs his coat, throws it on, and then jumps in the boat. All the commentators are confused by this. They don't understand. It makes no sense. Why would Peter grab his tunic right before diving into the sea? And this is just my own interpretation. I don't know. I imagine Peter's just operating on instinct. He sees Jesus, and he's like, I got to go there. I also got to grab my tunic. He's flustered. And so he just grabs it, throws it on. I imagine him swan dive into the Sea of Galilee, and he kicks for sure, swimming towards his Savior, tunic and all. My friends, church, no matter your failures, no matter your shame or guilt, no matter how big the mistakes you've made, you are always one yes away from following Jesus. You're always one yes away from following Jesus if you've never believed in him before and your weight of sin is against you. You can say yes to him as an act of faith and he forgives. Or through the process of sanctification, you might believe in Jesus and your sins. You can't lose your salvation, but you can get off track in following him. No matter how far off base you might feel, you are always one yes away, like Peter, from following him. Forty years from this moment, diving off the boat, Peter will write a letter. That letter is what you and I know as 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter 3.18, he says this, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I don't know about you, Sometimes I, maybe Peter, can kind of view my relationship with God in this sort of way, where this podium, just for the sake of an illustration, represents who God is. It represents God. And I'm close to God when I'm showing up to church, when it's negative 20 degree windshield. I feel close to God and I'm good with God. If I'm on my Bible reading plan 14 days into the new year and haven't ditched it, I'm doing good if I'm praying up for other people. I'm doing good if I'm serving. But the moment that I mess up, it feels like there's a separation. Oh, you mess up again? Another step away. Again, another step away. Peter (laughs) denies Jesus three times. Where's he? He probably feels like he's out in the parking lot. And yet, Peter knows something about Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He declared Jesus to be the Holy One of God. He walked on water with Jesus. He's seen Jesus perform miracles. He's seen the empty tomb at this point. He knows what he writes to us, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, reconcile us to God. That no matter your sin, it is covered. And if by faith you believe in him, he is always on shore, beckoning you towards him. You are always one yes away from following Jesus. And so, Peter arrives on shore, leaves his buddies behind. They drag the fish ashore. 
and they arrive before Jesus. There's a fun, another funny, this, this passage is wonderful because of the details. It, it proves to me that this truly is eyewitness testimony in Scripture, that John's writing down what he saw. Do you notice what Jesus is sitting behind on the shore when they arrive? It's a charcoal fire. The only other time John mentions a charcoal fire in his gospel is when? Your Bible might have a footnote. John 18, when Peter has just denied Jesus to a girl, and Peter and some other soldiers are sitting behind a fire warming themselves, a charcoal fire. And now they wash up on shore, and there's, John says, there's Jesus warming himself behind a charcoal fire. You ever get caught red-handed with something and the blood just drains out from under you? I imagine Peter's kind of feel like deer in the headlights. I'm like, oh, this is John's way of reminding the reader, reminding us of what Peter's done, what's going to happen next. What's Jesus going to say to these guys? Verse 9. Let's keep reading. When they got out on land... They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. I want to pause for a second, pull off to the side. When I was studying this passage, I read 153 large fish. I wondered to myself, why did John write specifically 153 large fish? Fortunately for me, many people throughout church history have wondered this themselves. And I I relied on a guy named Guzak and Don Carson. Their commentaries lay out, if you want to go down a wormhole, this is one. Okay, Don Carson spends... He, he writes, much ink has been spilled over why 153 fish. And so I started studying it. Um, lots, of, lots of opinions. Augustine believed that 153 was significant because 10 commandments in the Old Testament, seven gifts of the Spirit in Revelation 1. When you add 10 plus 7, that gets you 17. When you triangulate the number 17, I had to Google that. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I only went to Ohio State. They don't teach you that there. <laughs> <laughs> if you triangulate 17, which means 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, all the way up to 17, that gets you to 153. You guys are smart. That's good. All right. So then there was this, this practice um, uh, called gematria. I think that's how you pronounce it, where the Hebrew alphabet, each uh, letter corresponds to a number. And so if you gematria Peter and fish, that adds up to... 153. Very nice, right? Um, in the gospel accounts of Peter feeding the five, or Jesus feeding the 5,000, there's five fish and 12 baskets. Five plus 12 equals 17, which triangulated equals 153. And so I'm going through. By the way, there's some wild theories. One's on Ezekiel 47. You can go down that wormhole if you want. Um, and so I get to the end of Don Carson's commentary, and he says this. I think this is verbatim. He says, Many theories for why there are 153 fish included by the author John, but it seems most likely that the reason he says that the 153 fish were caught was that there were 153 fish caught. (laughs) I was like, Don, put that at the beginning. You saved me time, brother. (laughs) 
Maybe Jesus performed a miracle and they caught 153 fish. I love that John includes the detail. They were large fish. He's just good fishermen. You've got to tell how big the fish are. We keep reading. Verse 12. I don't know if you were edified by that. By now you know. Okay. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Point number two that I have for you this morning is simply this. You need to see that Jesus already has what you're looking for. Jesus already has what you're looking for. Jesus gives Peter and his disciples a strategy for catching fish. Cast your net on the right-hand side. But the thing I want you to notice is that in the end, it is not Peter and the disciples' 153 fish that they eat. When they walk on shore, Jesus already has fish and bread ready. Through this breakfast with the disciples, Jesus is doing what he does so well, so consistently. He's teaching by showing. This scene can almost function as a parable for you and I. When you are failing to bring anything to the table, or even when you bring 153 large fish to the table, Jesus doesn't need it. He's already got what you need, He's already got what you were working for and striving for out there. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. You need to see that Jesus is your ultimate provider and that whatever your heart longs for, Whatever you are striving for, working for, God provides it willingly when you follow him. I think many people, including myself, many Christians, know this intellectually, but struggle to uh, accept it as reality in day-to-day life. Here's what I mean by this. High school ministry, high school students, uh, we have a discipleship program for them where they can, it's kind of like extra that they can do beyond just showing up on a Sunday night. And what they can do is they join the program and they do three things. Uh, Number one, they opt into a Bible reading plan. I give them a Bible reading plan, they commit to reading it. That's number one. Number two, they serve. So they show up early on Sunday nights or they stay late on Sunday nights. They set up ping pong tables. They tear down chairs. They pick up all the trash that other kids have thrown on the ground and squished into the carpet. That's what they do. Um, The third element is that they participate or they do a spiritual discipline that I give them every month. So for instance, this month, spoiler alert if you're in it, students, scripture memory. So they're going to practice doing scripture memory. I'll teach them how I best know how to do it, and then they'll put that in the practice for the next month. I think back in November, I asked them to do uh, spiritual discipline. I just called silence and solitude and prayer before God. Five to ten minutes a day, preferably after 
they do their Bible reading. That way their mind is saturated with God's word before they go into prayer. And because I have uh, a conscience like a freight train, I was like, if I'm going to give them this assignment, I'm going to do it myself. And so after my Bible, I'm good at like tactile things. You give me a Bible reading plan where I can check off. You let me prayer journal, prayer walk, all of that. I'm good to go. To sit silently. I was so serious with the students about this. I said, get rid of your phones. I bought them all little analog timers. And I was like, throw your phone in the trash for 10 minutes. Use this timer to keep track of time. So I did the same thing. And I was, I'll just be honest, the first week or so, so discouraged at myself. At how bad I was at it. I mean, I'd sit there, do my Bible reading, check it off. Then I'd sit, turn on my nice little lamp sit there in silence, and then not 10 seconds would go by, and a thought like, you know, I can't believe the Browns lost last night, <laughs> flash through my head. Or, you know, I've got to, I should be at the dentist right now. Am I missing my appointment? Or did I, what email did I, like all of these thoughts kept running through my head, and I would get really frustrated because all these thoughts didn't feel like they were from God. And after about a week or so, I began to wonder, why can't I settle my mind and do this simple task? Pray to God, silently before him. Two reasons I landed. Number one, I just probably do it inconsistently. It's like trying to bench 300 pounds, but you can't get up five pounds, right? It's like you've got to put in the work to develop that muscle. That's number one. But number two, I feel like we, I, live in an age of constant, unyielding noise. Netflix, sports, YouTube, TikTok, kids, email, radio, podcasts. Northern Kentucky, you walk outside, planes flying overhead everywhere. Noise, you can't escape it. To quiet my mind for five minutes with silence before God feels so unnatural in our cultural age because of the noise out there. The noise is designed to hijack your attention and your affections often. The constant and unceasing noise functions as a a reminder of the things that you need to do. It reminds you of everything going on in the world, which creates angst, anxiety, stress. The noise of social media reminds you of our culture's perfectly curated ideals that you probably are failing to live up to, which adds more things that you need to do, which adds more thoughts, more noise. It's the constant noise of content that consistently makes us discontent. It reminds us of the things that we always have to do, what's next, the standards you need to live up to, and all the things you need to be aware of to be in the know. Noise. But what your heart and my heart truly needs is a silent moment before the living God. I'm not making this up. It's in the text. (laughs) I love how relevant Scripture is for our lives today. Look with me. Jesus is brilliant. John is brilliant for including this. John 21, 12, the verses we just read, the disciples wash up on shore. Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The disciples eat with Jesus. They're communing with him, but they don't say a word to him. They're thinking about him. He's sitting right there. Jesus says, come and have breakfast, but they sit silently before them. They see him, and they're thinking to themselves, is this really him? But they're too afraid to say it. And I think it's good that these disciples on this side of the resurrection and the cross are sitting silently before the Lord, wrestling with who he is. This is the risen Savior who just died for us and defeated death. What does that mean? And Jesus, with just such an economy of words, by saying, come and eat, come have breakfast, effectively is telling the disciples, what you were looking for out there, I already have right here. I am the bread of life. For us, in our age of noise, distraction, and chaos, we desperately need silence before, the God, before God. A chance for us to ponder the person of Jesus. Is he really, truly the resurrected Son of God? And if he is, what does that mean for me? My friends, you've got room in your bulletins. I don't make Brad Bigney-style bulletins full of notes. There's some extra space for you there. I'm not that smart. Write down, what are you searching for out there in the chaos of the world that Jesus has for you right here? Direction? Hope? Joy? Meaning? Love, deliverance, you need to know that Jesus already has what you're looking for. He is the bread of life. He ultimately satisfies. And so, for you guys, my encouragement for you, five minutes, five to ten minutes this week, what would it look like for you, if you're not already doing it, to sit prayerfully before the Lord in silence, mind saturated by Scripture, to sit before him and ponder, who is this Jesus and what does he have for me that I'm looking for out there? Now, being in God's presence is wonderful. He fills us up. He satisfies. But he doesn't fill us up to just let us sit there. He does it so that he would send us out. And so he does that too with Peter and the disciples. So let's keep reading. John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another one will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
And after having said this, he said to him, follow me. Last point this morning, point number three, your love for Jesus must be demonstrated by your love for God's people. Your love for Jesus must be demonstrated by your love for God's people. Here we have this famous scene with Peter and Jesus where Jesus asks Peter, Simon Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. This refrain takes place three times. More controversy with this passage centers around the word love. Our English Bibles are wonderful, great translations, originally written in Greek. There's two Greek words used here by Jesus. The first two times that Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? He uses the Greek word agape, which is sort of the self-sacrificing love. It's often viewed as like the ultimate form of love. And then all three times in response to Jesus's, Simon, do you agape love me? Peter says, I phileo love you, which means to have a brotherly affection. And then the third time, Jesus says, Simon, do you phileo love me? And so it's this idea that Jesus sort of condescends and gracefully meets Peter where he's at, but that Peter is, is still struggling with his sin. He can't quite get to love Jesus the way that he should. That's sort of how it goes. But I agree with D.A. Carson and other commentators when they say that most likely uh, the distinction and the importance, importance between the agape and phileo love are probably overstated by us. Why? Primarily because John, the gospel writer here, interchanges, uses agape and phileo love constantly throughout the Gospel of John without any intended difference in interpretation uh, intended. It's nuanced, very nuanced. So for instance, when John speaks of the disciple whom Jesus loved, both agape and phileo are used. When John says Jesus loved Lazarus, both agape and phileo are used, John 11.5, John 11.36. When describing how the father loves the son, both agape and phileo are used, John 3.35 and John 5.20. The point, I think, for us today is not to parse out the minutia of the difference between agape and phileo. The point is to see Jesus' response to Peter's profession of love. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Say sorry. Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Don't do that again. No, it's Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Not that saying, repenting and saying sorry to God is a bad thing. It's a good thing. Not that not doing your sin again is not, is not important. It is. But what Jesus is saying is the mark of a disciple of Jesus, if you could encapsulate it all, feed my sheep. Really, it's a beautiful encapsulation of both the great commandment and the great commission. Go make disciples. Love your neighbor as yourself. Feed my sheep. You know, some people, we don't believe this, I don't believe this. Some have postulated and thrown up this idea that John 21 shouldn't be in the Bible. Because if you read John 20, it ends really nicely. There's a nice clean bow. And then when you get to John 21, he just tacks on this story. And it's a little odd. But any good reader of 
ancient Near Eastern text knows that this is a classic epilogue. It's kind of like a Marvel movie where the, the movie ends, the credits roll, but then you get this bonus scene that ties together the loose ends from the story but points you forward to what's next. This is John 21. Jesus is summarizing for us and for Peter here your mission. If you love me, feed my sheep. When I was in high school, I played baseball and golf, but my favorite of the two, golf by far. Um, no, no wind sprints, just hitting balls on the driving range. Awesome. And I, if you also know me, you know that I love sports. And one of my favorite things, oh, the Browns lost. One of my favorite things is that the, the halftime pep talks by coaches or pregame pep talks, they just get me hyped. Like I love when TV shows that and I get to see that. And when I was in high school, I always thought it would be funny if our golf coach, when we arrived at the course, would give us a pep talk for golf. And so I was like, what would that look like for coach to give us a pep talk before we hit the links? Like, what would he say? Boys, fix your divots. You know, uh, don't hit it in the water. And so I always, I was like, coach, you got to give us a pep talk. I'd love to get a pep talk. And so I remember one match, my senior year, we drive up to, I think it was Finley Country Club in Ohio, and we arrive, and all of us are on the bus yelling, pep talk, pep talk. And coach's like, all right. So he gets up there, and he looks at all of us, and he goes, boys, hit them straight. And he just walks off the bus. (laughs) I remember sitting there being like, yeah. Hit them straight. What else do I need? Like, if I would just, this guy's brilliant. If I were just on the tee, I hit it straight onto the fairway. Good shape. If I'm on the fairway and I would just hit it straight onto the green, that's winning. If I would just putt it straight in the hole, that's a birdie. Like, that's, <laughs> that's all I need. There was something, now that doesn't mean there's not important things that go into golf. Hit them straight is overly simplistic in many ways. But boy, it serves as sort of the fog cutter to be like, this is your mission. Hit the ball straight. Jesus, John 21, our epilogue, tying loose threads together, pointing forward to the early church. Do you love me? His hit them straight pep talk for the disciples. Feed my sheep. There's other things with being a disciple of Jesus but fulfilling the great commandment and the great commission by feeding God's sheep. Jesus says, if you love me, this will be evident in your life. My friends, I believe feeding God's sheep, feeding his people, is done best within the context of the local church, the body here. What does it mean to feed God's lambs? It means to give them his word, It means to show them Christ. It means to display the fruit of the Spirit in a radical way. It means to pray without ceasing amongst each other. I love New Year's resolutions. (laughs) I make many goofy ones, many serious ones. And I know that we're past the January, what, 14th today? We're past the January 1 deadline to make New Year's resolutions. But I'm a firm believer that it's never too late to resolve to do something important. What would it look like if... We, as a church body, resolved to feed God's sheep in a different or deeper way this year. To really take seriously what Jesus says, if you love him, feed 
my sheep. There are multiple ways you could do that within this church. I love this church. There's wonderful things happening. God is working powerfully. Selfish plug, just admit student ministry. We would, I would love it if you would commit, any of you would commit to feed the students in our ministry in a deeper way or a different way. Our students, high school students, middle school students, whether they know it or not, are desperate for God's word, God's truth, and the gospel. And there's so many different ways you could partner with us. I, I, would, I would truly be so happy if I got emails tomorrow from any of you saying, Ryan, I commit to feed God's sheep by praying for your students. Give me a handful of kids that need prayer. We'll send them to you. I'd love for you to pray for our students. Pray for our leaders who show up week in, week out, and give. And it's difficult. Please pray for them. Pray for your youth pastors. Feed God's sheep. Um, community groups. Maybe for you, the step is get involved in a community group. Maybe it's lead community group. Feed God's sheep. Like Brad says, doing life together at close, close range produces such good fruit. Join a community group. Get involved. Take the next step. We don't want to be Christians that are on our heels, but we want to be Christ followers that are on our toes, following him in community, loving one another, feeding one another God's word. There's so many ways to feed God's sheep in this church. Now, I want to say this. Many of you, when I say feed God's sheep, I'm looking at some of you right now. I know you're already doing it. You're serving. You're making coffee early in the morning. You're praying. You're on the worship team. And I just want to say thank you. And I want to say that God sees it, and I think God loves it. And I also want to say keep being faithful. Ministry is hard. Fruit doesn't grow overnight, but God is faithful. I know many of you have little kids. Many of you have tons of kids. Feeding God's sheep might be loving your kids in a new and a different way. I don't know what that looks like. Whatever it is, write it in your bulletin. God loves it. God sees it. Keep feeding them. Keep feeding them God's word. So what? Here's where I want to land the plane with you this morning. I gave you three main ideas. If you're like me, my mind can't, I'm like, if I walk out of these doors, I need one idea three main, that to really hang my hat on and ponder and pray about. The three main points this morning, number one, you are always one yes away from following Jesus. Maybe you're in this room and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, but you feel the weight of your guilt just like Peter did. You need to remember that Christ has paid for it, and it takes one step of faith to trust him to say yes, and you are forgiven. Maybe you are already a follower of Jesus, but you feel like you've gone off the rails in some ways. You are always, like Peter, one yes away from following him again. Point number two, you need to see that Jesus already has what you're looking for. Are you searching out there for love, significance, security, joy? Whatever you're looking for, God already has it. He is the bread of life. And then point number three, your love for Jesus must be demonstrated by your love for God's people. Feed the sheep. I would encourage you, pick one this morning. How can you grow as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus?
We talked earlier, disciples, followers, follow so closely to Jesus that they are catching the dust of the rabbi. My prayer is that we, as a body of believers, would follow so closely to Jesus. We are soaking up his word. We are being filled up so that we might be sent out. I pray that God would strengthen you as you continue to follow him this week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you. Your word says that Jesus died once for sins, and we're grateful for that. We're thankful that we are not defined by our failures, but Jesus and his death are what defines us as members of the new covenant. So thank you. I pray that you would strengthen our church. Would you give us grace and comfort in these days when we so desperately need them? We love you so much. It's in him we pray. Amen.